This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. With Democrats in control of the state legislature, Colorado is as close as it's been in years to ending the death penalty. And Democratic Governor Jared Polis told me a repeal would have his support. If the legislature sends us a bill to eliminate the death penalty in Colorado, uh, I would sign that bill. I think it's not cost effective. I think it's not an effective deterrent. It's also not used very much here. The state's last execution was in 97, and prior to that, it had been 30 years since someone was put to death in Colorado. We're going to explore this state's ambivalence towards capital punishment with CU sociologist Michael Radlett. He's a national expert on the death penalty. And hello, Michael. Good morning, Ryan. In recent decades, state lawmakers have tried and failed, I think it's like five times to repeal the death penalty here. How does this latest effort compare? to past ones, do you think? Well, there's always been a history in Colorado of efforts to try to abolish the death penalty and also a history where those efforts were successful at one point. In 1897, Colorado abolished the death penalty. It was abolished for four years. But during those four years, there were a bunch of lynchings, including a black kid burned at the stake in Lyman They got a lot of national publicity at a time when Colorado was trying to look sophisticated and developed and all that, and burning people at the stake didn't fit with that image. These were extrajudicial killings. Exactly. Yep. So uh, the legislature went back, reinstated the death penalty, not as a deterrent to homicide, but rather as a deterrent to lynching. They wanted those lynchings to stop. And that the state would be the one to mete out those kinds of punishments if anyone was going to do so. Exactly. Uh No more mob violence. How would you compare this latest effort to the history of this in the state, though? Well, there's, there were efforts uh, that passed the Senate or the House one time or the other during the 1930s, during the 1950s, during the 1960s. 1960s, the effort to abolish the death penalty in Colorado was led by none other than the Colorado District Attorneys Association. Uh, Colorado also has the unfortunate distinction of being one of the few states in the country to have executed somebody who turned out to be innocent. Uh, Governor Ritter pardoned a man named Joe Aride who went to the gas chamber in 1939 because of absolute innocence. So we've got that uh, uh, sad mark in our history. Why don't you tell us just a little bit more about that story? Uh, Joe Aride was convicted with another guy of killing a, a, a young girl in Pueblo. Uh, he was developmentally disabled. He had actually escaped or taken off or walked away from what they called at the time the Colorado Home of Mental Defectives in Grand Junction. And he hopped on a freight train, ended up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where there was an adventurous sheriff looking for publicity who had read about this recent murder down in Pueblo and basically got Joe to confess to it despite Uh, Joe's very, very low IQ. No other evidence connected him with the crime. They had arrested another guy for it. They found the murder weapon in the other guy's home. Uh, All the evidence pointed to the other person. Nothing at all to Joe other than his very disputed confession. And many decades later, in pardoning him, Governor Bill Ritter called the case a tragic conviction based on a false and coerced confession. So that history looms large as Colorado debates the death penalty. Uh, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on the question uh, of, of mental competency, if you will, uh, to be executed. Tell us 
about that. Yes. Uh, finally, uh, just this century, the U.S. Supreme Court abolished the death penalty for defendants who are developmentally disabled. There are still ongoing arguments about whether or not the defendant's IQ is 69 or 71. 69 means he's safe. 71 means kill him. Uh, and a lot of disputes about where a given defendant falls in that, on that line. But um, also now we're having renewed debates about whether or not uh, we, we should be able to execute people who become mentally ill while on death row. We thought that that was resolved by the Supreme Court uh, back in, in uh, 1996, but those – I'm sorry, 1986, but those questions still come forward about people on death row who are really mentally ill. This is not resolved, in other words. Yes. Uh, just to go back to the history, I'm curious when the first state – sanctioned execution was in Colorado? Well, the first state sanctioned one was in 1866 when Colorado became a state. 1876, sorry. Uh, the first one in what would later become Colorado was in 1859. Back in the territory days. Uh, even before territory. Ah. Uh, and uh, they were all public at the time uh, in the 1850s, 60s. Uh, oftentimes executions were within a few days of the crime. Uh, and uh, they're very public. Now, at that time, we didn't have a prison. The only the only punishment for people convicted of murder was really uh, the death penalty. Today, anybody convicted of a capital offense who's not sentenced to death is still going to die in prison. The only alternative is life imprisonment without parole. Wait, are you saying that in the earliest days, uh, people were executed essentially because there was no place to house them? Right. The territorial prison in Canyon City wasn't opened until the 1870s. Wow. So before that, there was just no no place. Well, the place for long-term confinement was the seat of government. That was in Leavenworth, Kansas, pre-territorial days. And to go to Leavenworth, Kansas was, you know, it's about like going to Zimbabwe tonight for dinner. It wasn't <laughs> going to happen. Roughly how many executions, uh, sort of official executions, not these extrajudicial killings that you described, how many executions have taken place in Colorado? Uh, we've had 103 legally imposed executions, only one in the last 50 years. Help us understand why it has been so little used in the last 50 years. Well, part of it is that Colorado has got the best criminal defense bar in the country. Part of it is this ambivalence. Uh, so, for example, since... Uh, 1984, uh, uh, we've sought the death penalty in Colorado, uh, or actually had it imposed 23 times, and uh, only uh, two of those people are on death row. Three of those people are still on death row today. So there's a great ambivalence. Even though the juries in, in uh, death penalty cases are all, you have to be pro-death penalty. Yeah. If, if you don't support the death penalty, you're automatically excluded. So it's not really a jury of peers. Uh, but despite that, despite having all pro-death penalty jurors, most of the time when the death penalty is sought, it's not imposed. And so that points, as you say, to the system that sort of kicks in after a jury has delivered a death sentence. Uh, it's the appeals process that goes on for decades. And that has maintained people on death row alive, I presume. Well, it's not only the appeals process. Technically, uh, the appeals process doesn't kick in until the case gets out of trial court. So, for example, uh, the two people uh, sentenced to death uh, for the uh, for the murder of State Senator Rhonda Fields' son uh, were sentenced to death about 10 years ago, and their case is still in trial court. It hasn't even begun its appellate process. That case could go on for many, many years. And if we look at the 
if we look at the history, the probability is that the appellate court might actually throw out that death sentence. Rhonda Fields, who opposes abolishing the death penalty, I should say. Yes. Tell us about the last execution in Colorado, the circumstances of it. June 2nd, 1967, a man named Louis Manji, who was convicted of killing three of his kids here in, uh, here in Denver, went to the gas chamber. He dropped his appeals and asked to be executed. And not only was that the last execution in Colorado... Well, Gary Lee Davis, though, would be... Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about before the death penalty was abolished. Uh, which is another iteration right. of it, this story. Yeah, the death penalty... Help, help us understand this because it, it is a complicated history here. The death penalty permanently abolished in the United States, or at least people thought it was permanent, in 1972. The yeah. Supreme Court threw it out. Everybody on death row was commuted to life. Uh, however, in 1976, it was reinstated. So we think of 1972 as beginning of the modern era of the death penalty. And tell us about the most recent execution under that. So uh, Gary Davis was uh, convicted of a murder of a woman in Briars, Colorado. Uh, and uh, he was uh, tried in Brighton, sentenced to death. Uh, he had a co-defendant, his, uh, his wife, who was sentenced to life without parole. She died of natural causes uh, in prison a few years later. There wasn't even a newspaper article about it. Nobody ever heard of her. But in any event, Gary D Davis um, uh, ended up at the end. He too dropped his appeals. He had a couple minor appeals left. So we don't, I don't think he would have prevailed. But nonetheless, he was executed in Canyon City in 1997. How was he executed? I don't want to get graphic here, but I think it's important to understand how the state has administered this over time. It was a lethal injection. And Colorado has another uh, unique aspect to its death penalty. We've always fiddled around with trying to find a humane way to execute people. So not only did we hang people for most of our history, but we invented this machine where the person was jerked up. It was called Jerk to Jesus launched to eternity. The person uh, was was attached to a rope on a couple of pulleys. On the other end, they dropped a weight. So the guy went kazoom up to the sky, and they thought that that would put more weight on his neck and, and help break his neck rather than strangle him to death. Colorado used that method up until 1933. My goodness, this was a kind of assisted hanging, a, a, a hanging enhanced... Right, exactly. They wanted, you know, if, for example, if I drop from the gallows, there's 170 pounds on my neck. But if you use this pulley mechanism and drop, uh, the person is launched up, you can put 1,000 pounds on it. And one of the last guys who was executed that way weighed only 80 pounds. So he went up like a rocket ship and got tangled in the overhead horizontal beam. A bunch of state legislators were there, and that was it for hanging in Colorado. We switched to the gas chamber in 1933. And most recently, as you say, it's been lethal injection. Correct. There have been all kinds of obstacles to getting the proper drugs, the cocktail for that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And as state lawmakers debate the future of the death penalty in this state, we are speaking with CU Boulder sociology professor Michael Radlett, who is an expert on capital punishment. I will say that his long career researching the topic has led him to oppose the death penalty um, what, what would you say, um, are the reasons for Colorado's ambivalence? Help us just understand that a little bit more. Well, a part of it comes from voices of families of homicide victims. Uh, in uh, 2009, 
the state legislature came within one vote of abolishing the death penalty. And that effort was led by a group called Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons. And they were able to show that 40% of homicides in Colorado aren't even solved. It's not even clear by arrest. We don't know who did it. And their demand was that we abolish the death penalty, not because they oppose the death penalty, but rather because uh, they did not want to put the millions of dollars in one case. They would rather have those millions invested in what are called cold case squads so that we can investigate some of these unsolved homicides. Back to a point you made earlier, this this idea that there was a point in rather recent history where the United States essentially, for a time, abolished the death penalty. I'm not sure that's a history many people are familiar with. In in the last few seconds or so, help us understand that kind of watershed. Well, uh, in 1972, the Supreme Court ruled uh, the death penalty was a violation of the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. There were some 630 people on death row around the country, including three in Colorado. All those sentences were commuted to life. But interestingly enough, Ryan, since 1984, there have been nine more states that have abolished the death penalty. They reinstated it in the 70s and 80s, and then they got rid of it. Uh, And plus now there are four states led by Colorado that have moratoriums on executions. So um, in Colorado, we have a moratorium that's been followed by Oregon, Pennsylvania, and most recently last week in California, where Governor Newsom announced that no executions would occur while he's in office. Thank you for being with us and sharing the long view. Thank you. CU Boulder sociology professor Michael Radlett, a national expert on the death penalty. So on Friday, we spoke with the foreman of the last jury to sentence someone to death in Colorado. Ten years later, Carl Dubler stands by his decision, saying capital punishment underscores that not all murders are created equal. You can hear that conversation at CPR.org. She's 12 years old and has plans to change the world. We have listened to the scientists and we have found the facts. The time to act is now. That is Haven Coleman of Denver speaking in Washington, D.C. just this past Friday. She helped organize the National Youth Climate Strike, part of a worldwide effort to fight climate change. Haven, welcome to our show. Hi. Hi. In the D.C. clip there, I heard your voice waver just a little bit. I wonder if you were just feeling emotional or even nervous in front of such a large crowd? What was it like speaking in front of all those people in D.C.? Well, um, sort of since this is such a pressing pressing issue and I've been like and when you've I've been fighting it for like two years and I know a lot of people, they've done it longer. But every time I think about it, I see I always remember how terrifying and scary climate change is if you actually like think about it how it's been affecting me for my whole life every, like every pretty much everyone in my whole generation for our lives and it will be for like the rest of our lives in generations and so i think i was very like excited for like how many people were there and excited and nervous because and nervous yeah but also th- this is a topic that it seems like you have a real emotional connection to how did you get on to this issue um, it was like 
two years ago. Um, I had this amazing fifth grade social studies teacher, and he would integrate stuff that was happening in the real, real world what, <laughs> with what was happening in, um, like, what we were learning about. Yeah. And um, I think he... So he integrated deforestation into one of our lessons. I was like, what's deforestation? It's a and, big word. <laughs> you know? Um, and for people who don't know what it is, it's like when people cut down trees at a massive rate and then it endangers lots of species. And then I was like, I got to research this because I thought it was a very interesting topic. And so I started researching it and I noticed how deforestation is affecting my favorite animal, the sloth. And I was like, ah, gosh, no. So it was like, now I got to do something about that. And then I started researching how to stop deforestation. And then I found climate change and how climate change um, is like tied with deforestation. Of course, you're removing all those trees which absorb carbon. So that's not a great thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why is the sloth your favorite animal? I don't know. They're just cute, slow and cuddly and they're so furry and adorable. <laughs> and the moment you saw climate change affecting them... It sounds like it tugged at your heartstrings. So you uh, went on to co-found the U.S. Youth Climate Strike. You're also one of the Colorado state leaders. And your speech over the weekend was about the power of youth and how everyone is affected by climate change. Our generation has never lived a normal climate. We have been left with what adults can't fix. So we will do what's necessary. Adults may have wasted decades of time, and every second counts. Every voice counts. Every single person who acts out counts. Globally, it's estimated that nearly a million and a half children left school for that day in more than 100 countries. I think those are the latest numbers I saw. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting you say we have been left with what adults can't fix. Talk to me about what you see as the failures of adults on this topic. Well, since I know that, like, in the 70s, people could have stopped climate change all, like, all together. But the, the adults then, and, like, I think my grandparents and their generation, they didn't do anything. They procrastinated, and now we're screwed, and now we have, like, 11. And throughout those years, we had, like, chances to make it less worse and less worse since we missed that one time to stop climate change altogether. But nobody really acted on it. Everybody either said that it can't be fixed or we don't have the stuff, even though we do have, like, a ton of stuff to fix and do the right things for it. But, um, like, we adults have wasted decades, as I said in the speech, of time to, like, actually act on climate change and make it so that we aren't the ones who actually have to, like, um, who actually have to, um, like, fight for this, like, since this is our gen, even, this is our, this is, like, the first generation who's actually acted mm -hmm. and are being affected by climate change. You know, climate change can feel really political to adults as well. Do you think it's as political for young people? No, because technically climate change is a nonpartisan issue because it's affecting everyone, no matter if you're Republican or Democratic or nonpartial or like no matter who you are, you're going to be affected. In 2017, you posted a video on YouTube that went viral. It's of you interacting with Congressman Doug Lamborn. Uh, I think down in Colorado Springs yes. during a town hall. 
solar jobs outnumber coal mining jobs, and coal use is down, way down, even from 2006. Why do you continue to support creating coal mining jobs when it's a career that endangers its workers and makes them sick? Renewable energy jobs keep people above ground, breathing fresh air, and helps veterans. Also, I'd like to invite you to my science class next Friday. <laughs> What have you learned, though, about speaking to people who hold different views from you? Well, so most people, they just try to, like, act directly to them. But that's not really the right way. Because if you, like, start yelling at them or start, like, talking just in general to them on issues that they don't really believe in, these are, like, shut off. And they're like, nope, not listening to this. They sort of, like, ignore it. But, like, if you, since I was taught in that speech, I um, talked a lot about not just coal and stuff and um, the greenhouse gases, but stuff as in, since he and Colorado Springs care a lot about military issues, I um, tied into, since he cares a lot about military issues, I tied into him, like, I was talked about how veterans, um, it's easier for them to... uh, (laughs) Uh, get a green, uh, a renewable energy job for, and then they can get back into the real world because it's sort of isolated. Once they leave the service, yes. you mean? Mm-hmm. Where do you want to take this next? What do you mean? Your movement. Um, I know that, that we are going, planning to have another strike, which is May 3rd. And, um, yeah, and we are going to do something in the summer, like some, probably something like involving like political parties like rallying or like rallying or something like that and also in next fall we'll be doing strikes around the UN summit around the UN summit how do your teachers allow you time outside the classroom for all this I, I'm thinking you would otherwise well, be in school if you weren't talking to me right now um so my school I've been really lucky with my school because they've allowed me to sort of uh like given me some time to like work on this since they noticed the mat like how big it is how big it's gotten and how much time it's taken yes I it's usually... nice to meet you thanks so much haven no problem this 12 year old haven coleman who lives in denver i also want to say happy birthday because i think it's this month right you'll be 13 yes my well, birthday she, is march 29th <laughs> march 29th she'll be 13 she's a co-founder and now co-directs the u.s youth climate strike All right, Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. This is CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College. How it's gotten so partisan and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When she talks about climate change, scientist Catherine Hayhoe has a powerful tool, her faith. Hayhoe is an evangelical Christian and directs the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. On her YouTube channel, Global Weirding, Hayhoe tackles thorny questions. Poor people in developing countries need fossil fuels to reach the standard of living we enjoy. It's completely unfair to tell them they can't, right? 
Hayhoe was in Colorado last September to help climate scientists here better communicate on what's often a polarizing topic. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. In a recent editorial for Science Magazine, you wrote that the most effective thing I've done is to let people know that I'm a Christian. It's essential to connect the impacts of a changing climate directly to what's already meaningful in one's life. And for many people, faith is central to who they are. Uh, Would you give me an example of how that's been effective? Yes. So as scientists, we often have the reputation or the stereotype of being uh, godless liberal atheist tree huggers. And many of us certainly are. Um, But that means that for people who take their faith seriously and who have heard that climate is not changing or humans aren't responsible, it gives them an excuse to dismiss what scientists say. Whereas when I say, no, I share your faith. I believe, you know, pretty much the same things as you do, and I know that God's creation is telling us that the planet is warming and humans are responsible. That has a whole different impact because they can't dismiss me as being other. Do you modify your message or do you just merely introduce yourself as I'm one of you? On the science, absolutely, it's the same. It doesn't really matter whether we believe in this or that. A thermometer still tells us the same numbers. But you can't just stop by talking about the problem. You have to talk about why you care about it and what we can do to fix it. Why I care about a changing climate is because it disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable in this world who are already suffering from poverty and hunger and lack of access to clean water and other resources. And that connects directly to my faith. And then it leads us into talking about solutions that are consistent with the values that we have. But if I vote for politicians who want to abate climate change, I'm voting perhaps for pro-choice politicians or ones who believe in gay marriage uh, or ones who believe in many other things that are contrary to what I believe. Yes, you. I think you've hit the nail right on the head there. And that's why I appreciate the work of organizations like the Evangelical Environmental Network so much because they share with people how climate change is actually a pro-life issue. Life doesn't stop at birth. It continues all the way through to death. And if people really are pro-life, and if pro-life is what really matters to them, then they need to be against pollution. They need to be against climate change. They need to be against all of the things that disproportionately, again, affect people who don't have the resources to deal with them. So that's a way of perhaps affecting the mindset of the voters. How do you affect the mindset of the leaders? Hmm. Honestly, I think that that is harder because their mindset is not so much on what they think is true or not. It's on what they think will get them elected or not. And that is a completely different thing. There are many people who would say, sure, you know, climate change is real, but I'm not going to stand up and say that. Or, you know, I might say, yes, it's real, but I'm not going to do anything about it because that won't get me reelected. So that's why solutions, I think, are so important, because if you can show the co-benefits, as we call it, of solutions. The fact that, for example, in Texas, where I live, wind energy supplies over 25,000 jobs. 
It is revitalizing small rural communities who are losing all their young people by providing new jobs and increasing the tax base. If you can show that there's solid short-term economic benefits to some of the solutions, then all of a sudden you have a whole different category of people on board. And a politician can say, you know, well, I'm not sure about this whole climate change thing, but I do know that wind energy is good for our community, so let's get behind it. And that's a completely different conversation. Now, you are very public about your religious beliefs, and I suspect that not all scientists, A, want to be public about their private lives, and B, may not be religious. Uh, They may be agnostic, or they may be atheist. Are there lessons in what you've learned about communicating the message of climate change for those who don't, uh, either one, share your religious values, or two, your openness? Yes, absolutely. The point is, is that we need to figure out how we can connect with people. And so for me, one of the most fundamental ways that I can connect with people, again, is is through my faith. But for others, it might be the simple fact that they live in the same community or that they're both parents or they might be members of the Rotary Club or the Kiwanis Club or they could be passionate skiers or birders or hikers. There's a million points of connection that we can make with people. Every single one of us, even scientists, we really are human. We have other interests outside the ivory tower. And it's a matter of connecting our heart to our head when we share with people. I was reading something from the late preacher Billy Graham. Let me quote it to you. People ask, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth again? Yes, I do. The Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again, and I don't see any other hope because we're heading towards a catastrophe in our world. Mm. And end quote. What do you say to people who, I don't know if the word is conflate the apocalyptic nature of climate change and the end times? Well, interestingly, in our Global Weirding series, which people can find on YouTube, the most popular episode we did was called, What Does the Bible Say About Climate Change? And this completely surprised me because all the other videos are about, you know, hurricanes or weather extremes. We did one video on what does the Bible say, and it addressed all of the most common religiously sounding myths that I get on a weekly and sometimes even daily basis. And one of those is the one you just mentioned. If the world is going to end anyways, why should we care? In Mm. fact, some people would even go further and say, bring it on. This is moving us faster in the right right direction. Right. Yes. And they do. I hear this all the time. So to respond to uh, objections that people think are based on the Bible, science isn't going to help us with that. We actually have to go to where they think this is coming from, the Bible. And what's fascinating, of course, is that human nature has not really changed much in 2,000 years. And in the New Testament, there was one church, and you know, the Apostle Paul went around traveling and visiting and writing to all these early churches back in the day. There was one church who said, okay, well, if the world's going to end anyway, we'll just quit our jobs, lay around, twiddle our fingers, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because the world's going to end soon. And the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and he said, essentially, this is paraphrasing, but there's, there's no one like the Apostle Paul to tear a strip off someone. He said, you know, get a job, support your family, care for the widows and the poor. You have a job to do here and now. And again, that is central to why we care about a changing climate, because it is affecting real people today. And there's a biblical message, you say, a biblical underpinning there. It is. So all the way from Genesis, where it talks about how humans have responsibility or dominion, 
over creation. And again, you know, people have taken the word dominion and distorted it. But if you look at a CEO who has dominion over the, a company, and that CEO runs the company into the ground and just leaves it a smoking ruin, we wouldn't respect somebody who exercised dominion in that way. So whether you call it dominion or responsibility or stewardship, it's taking care of and being responsible for the growth and the well-being of this planet in Genesis 1. And then it goes all the way through the Bible till the end in Revelation where it talks about how God will destroy those who destroy the earth. So there are themes woven not just throughout the Bible, but throughout every major world religion, talking about caretaking or stewardship of nature or creation, and also talking about caring for those who are less fortunate than us. It seems, Catherine, that there's been a a 180 in Washington. I mean, in, in 2016, you were part of a conversation with President Obama and Leonardo DiCaprio about climate change at the White House. Flash forward to recent weeks when President Trump announced that he'll relax carbon standards on coal-fired power plants. Uh, of course, he's also started to withdraw from the, the Paris Climate Agreement. Is the country more divided now than ever on climate change? It seems as though it is with every news report that we read and every story that we see. But when I go out and talk to people, we are starting to see it change. Why? Because today, no matter where we live in the United States, in North America, we can start to see evidence of a changing climate. Some good friends of ours are absolutely hardcore at rejecting the science of climate change. And my husband's even, you know, confronted them saying, look, you've known Catherine for years. Do you think she's an idiot or do you think she's lying to you? And they just, that does not make a dent. But these people who are farmers and they're very in touch with the land, even they will say, you know, it's really been a crazy set of years. As long as our family has farmed this land, we have not seen these types of wild swings ever. And whether it's stronger hurricanes, whether it's crazy wildfires, whether it's shifts in the season where we see trees flowering and birds arriving earlier in the year than they should, we're seeing the evidence of our own eyes around us. And that change in opinion is happening today. The majority of people in the United States do agree climate is changing and humans are responsible. And especially among younger people, it's an overwhelming majority that say, yeah, of course this is real. Let's stop arguing over science that's been around for 150 years and let's get going with fixing this problem. But as a climate scientist, though, I know that every year that goes by without meaningful action to reduce our carbon emissions means that there is an extra amount of damage that is going to occur that is not reversible. It's like smoking. When's the best time to stop smoking? Today. If you can't stop today, you know, next week. <laughs> but, but, but the more we smoke, the greater the damage we accumulate. What challenges do you face being a woman and a climate scientist at this moment in history? Have you faced more personal attacks, I wonder? Well, just to be clear, as soon as any scientist is willing to stick their head out of the ivory tower and say climate is changing and humans are responsible, they will get attacked. That is clear. But the more we stick our head out, the more frequently we are attacked. And unfortunately, if you look at the statistics of who comes against us in social media and emails and blogs online, the overwhelming majority of people are male. In fact, they've even published research papers. One was called Cool White Dudes about how people who reject the science on climate change are predominantly older white men. And so when you have a man, um, you know, coming against a woman saying you're wrong, you get situations like I ran into uh, today on Twitter, 
where an anonymous person said, you're not willing to learn. And I said, well, do you have the experience to teach me? If you have some research papers you've published, I'd I'd love to see them. (laughs) No, I don't. But you need to learn from me. Where would the idea come from that somebody with no formal education and no professional experience somehow knows more than somebody who has a PhD and 100 publications in the field? It comes from this amazing phenomena. It's called the Dunning-Kruger syndrome that is even stronger when it comes to men explaining to women how they don't know what they're talking about. So not only that, but a lot of the attacks that I and other women get have a strong gender component to it. You know, my last name is Hayho, so there's easy jokes on that to do with women's, women. Oh. Um, there's people who say things about your looks, about your appearance, about how arrogant you are, that you could presume to tell a man something when he disagrees with you. So it, it really is tough. And unfortunately, the rise of the current presidency has emboldened people to be even less courteous and less civil online than they were before. But at the same time, you have to take heart from this. And you might say, well, that's a very Pollyanna way to look at it. But you have to take heart from the attacks because would you be attacked if they didn't think you were being effective? I don't think so. How how do you maintain any sort of, as you say, Pollyanna-ishness? Is that, can that be a word, Pollyanna-ishness? Yes, yes. Okay, we'll, we'll make that the noun. How can you maintain any kind of, of, of optimism, of brightness, when you look at the science and when you see from year to year the changes in the world? I mean, I, I think of the recent New York Times piece, The Decade We Could Have Saved Earth, and, and how scorched earth that felt after I, I read it. Uh, where where does your optimism come from, if it's there? My optimism does not come from observing the changes that are happening in the climate system, because every new study that comes out almost, we feel like it's happening, you know, sooner or faster or to a greater extent than we thought before. That is not where the hope is. As a climate scientist, I personally study the future, and I do see that there is a significant difference in the future that we can expect over our lifetime and those of our children, depending on the choices we make now. So when I look for hope, and you have to look for it, hope is not going to find you. You have to go out and look for hope. And I do that actively on a daily basis. And here's where I find the hope. I find it in people who are taking actions from small to big. I find it in solutions that are ingenious and incredible and far beyond anything I ever imagined. Oh, give, give us an example of a person or an ingenious solution. Leave us with a little bit of a nugget of hope. Yes. Well, I'll give you a small example. I live in the second most conservative town in the entire U.S., Lubbock, Texas. I go to the Lubbock Women's Club, which is, you know, the conservative bastion of the junior league of Lubbock, Texas. And we talk about how all these wind farms are being put up on people's land and how they love them and how this this older woman who looked, she was about probably about 85, came up to me afterwards and she said, I am so excited they are putting in some of these turbines on my land and on my neighbor Mabel's land. We're going to take our sandwiches and our stools and we're going to sit out there and we're going to watch it. I'll take pictures and I'll send them to you. I am so excited about this. And then you hear about crazy solutions like uh, the ones that they're looking at to actually take carbon dioxide out of the air and turn it into fuel. Or the fact that there's the first negative carbon power plant in Iceland that creates energy and then turns the resulting CO2 into stones that you can use to build with. There's stuff going on that you wouldn't even imagine. And that's why we need everybody on deck. This isn't a climate scientist thing. 
yes, we're good at diagnosing the problem, but we need the engineers, we need the business people, we need the investors, we need the people who are good at communicating this through the written word, through art, through music as well. We need everybody on board to give us a vision of the future that we want, because that's what's going to give us hope. Do you pray about this, Catherine? How could I not? Would you share what your prayers are? I, I pray for specific people. I feel that, um, that God often acts uh, very quietly in, in changing our minds on things that we might not be willing to change them on. And so I often pray for specific people, that their eyes would be open to various concerns or to certain possibilities. And um, I pray for various efforts that are going on, that they would be encouraged and they would, they would have what they need to keep on going because hope versus fear is really the situation that we're in today. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Catherine Hayhoe directs the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's also evangelical Christian. We spoke in September when she was here to share what she's learned with other scientists. While we're on this subject, I want to invite you to a special live event, the Climate Change Variety Hour. It's an evening of hope and real-world solutions with music, science, even comedy. We tape April 8th at the Newman Center at the University of Denver. There are ticket informa- There is ticket information at CPR.org. In Denver, a huddle of tiny homes is meant to give people dealing with homelessness a place to land until they find something permanent. The beloved community village started as a pilot project several years ago. It now has strong backing from city leaders. But CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis found there is debate about whether this is the right approach. The village is made up of 11 little homes, each of them just a single 80-square-foot room with heat and lights, no plumbing. Residents share a communal kitchen, bathhouse, and porta-potties. Sandra Hermans has lived here for more than a year. Before this... Shelter hopping for a while and sleeping out by the plat. Hermans stuff would get stolen. She would carry a knife for protection. And shelter curfew meant she was left on the street if she got there late after work. For her, the tiny house is great. It's a huge relief. I like being able to go somewhere at the end of the day and just flop down and not worry about being bothered or being cold or being hungry. She even has pets, a kitten, snakes, and a couple of rats. The people behind Beloved Community got started on the tiny house concept six years ago under the activist group of Denver Homeless Out Loud. The idea is to be nimble and cheap. Instead of buying land, take advantage of empty lots around the city and build temporary villages. Tanya Saleh is the co-director of the Colorado Village Collaborative. Tiny homes are a quick, cost-effective solution. Especially in Denver, it's hard to try to compete with developers for land. With Denver's unsheltered homeless population growing, up nearly 60 percent over the last five years to around 1,300 individuals, Saleh says tiny homes are needed. This first community serves 11 people, give or take roommates. But the idea is to eventually have tiny home villages around Denver. And the goal? To get people to move into permanent housing. Five people have so far. They're not paying any rent in the village in hopes of them saving everything that they're earning and then pay for their first month rent. But Denver's a really hard market for that. So, you know, these things do take time. The city started working with the tiny home activists in 2016, and it wants to see more villages built. Evan Dreyer is the deputy chief of staff to Mayor Hancock. We know we've got to try something different. Our shelters do a really good job but they don't serve everybody. The city has helped cover relocation costs when the village has had to move. 
which they will have to do again. The land they're on in Five Points is slated to be developed. So the city offered a piece of land in Globeville in northeast Denver for a $10 a year lease. But there's been backlash from Globeville residents, so the plan is on hold for now, an indication that moving these villages around the city won't be an easy sell. This will be the second move for the village in less than two years. And each relocation costs thousands of dollars, which steals resources from plans to build other villages. It's these kinds of challenges that has caused some homeless advocates to come out against the tiny village concept. You're looking for permanent housing solutions to homelessness, and this is uh, neither permanent or real housing. That's Sam Sembaris, the CEO of Pathways Housing First. In the 90s, Sembaris had this radical idea that to get people off the streets, you just need to give them a place to live with no requirements of sobriety. Meet their basic needs first, food, water, shelter, and then they can work towards a job and treatment. The concept is known as housing first, and it's shown to work. So Sembaris thinks, Why don't we just skip the tiny houses altogether and put them in permanent housing right away? And then we already have the success we're yearning for instead of having people wait a year to get there. Sembaris's work has changed the way many cities address homelessness, including Denver. The Colorado Coalition for the Homeless launched a Housing First program over 20 years ago. And in 2016, the city and a group of private investors created a social impact bond, a program based on the idea that the Housing First model can actually save a city money. The deal is investors pay the upfront costs of housing the city's most frequent users of the criminal justice system. Then the city pays the investors back, depending on results, which have been strong, a retention rate of over 85 percent. John Pervensky is the CEO of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless and has been for more than 30 years. Pervensky says temporary housing in any form, including tiny homes, can be an unnecessary and costly step. Most people can move directly from the streets or the shelters into permanent housing if given the right supports and the right resources. Parvensky appreciates the enthusiasm of the tiny home advocates, but he argues it's just not a practical idea. In the four years it's taken to get 11 tiny homes established... We've opened 203 units of housing. That is not enough in this uh, market and, and with the needs that we have out on the streets. And there's a growing overflow of people who stay in shelters or on the street every night. Parvensky realizes shelters aren't perfect, but he says they serve those who need them at a scale he believes tiny homes just can't match. It takes too much concentration and dedication of land resources, which are very difficult to find these days. Neither the National Alliance to End Homelessness or the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness fully endorse the tiny house concept. But communities are looking for solutions as unsheltered homeless populations rise. So tiny villages have been popping up across the United States. Seattle has gone all in with a network of nine communities of a total of 300 units. The city embraced the idea after it declared a state of emergency for homelessness in 2015. Viana Davila is a reporter with the Seattle Times. She says the city's villages are also temporary, and some are nearing the end of their leases. What is the exit plan for these people? And what is the exit plan for the village if you're saying the village is impermanent? Well, what does that look like then? <laughs> Davila says Seattle's plan isn't clear, but the goal is to get residents into permanent housing. One village is scheduled to close, though, partly because residents weren't moving out at the rate the city wanted. 
Davila says Seattle's villages face similar issues to Denver's. Opposition from neighbors, difficulties finding available and affordable land, and the question of exactly how to help people find a more permanent home. The city seems to agree right now that case management is really critical. If you're going to move people from these villages to some kind of housing situation, more permanent housing situation, um, and that can get expensive. That's where Evan Dreyer of Mayor Hancock's office would like to see more city involvement. Resources like case managers could help the village move residents into permanent housing. In turn, more people could then move into the village, and the cycle repeats. Despite the disapproval from some key experts, Dreyer says the tiny house concept is worth trying out. If we're looking at a strategy that involves multiple answers and multiple solutions, a, a tiny home village is an important part of that equation. A vote by the Denver City Council on whether to let the village settle in Globeville has been postponed. The beloved community has until mid-May to find a new location, and in that time, they hope to win over the neighborhood. But the Colorado Village Collaborative is also searching for backup options in hopes of keeping the experiment going. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. You've been listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.